1: To be talking about a 17th century nun, poet and playwright who is celebrated in Mexico. She's been called the 10th muse, the Mexican phoenix, the daughter of Apollo and the voice of the new world. But she's relatively unknown by many outside her home country. Her name was Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. And my guest today says that it is no exaggeration to call her a Mexican superstar. My guest is Amy Fuller Morgan, who is a lecturer in the History of the Americas at Nottingham Trent University. She's the author of Between Two Worlds: The Auto Sacramentales of Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz from 2015. And this summer she's organizing a big event called Challenging Narratives of European Conquest and Commemoration, The Fall of Tenochtitlan 500 Years On, which is an online conference to mark the anniversary of the conquest of Mexico. It's on the 12th and 13th of August. It's got some brilliant keynote speakers. MC Hammer has expressed his interest, and you can find it on Eventbrite. But today we're talking about nun and poet Sor Juana. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Now, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz is famous in Mexico, isn't she? How's she commemorated there? She's celebrated almost like an icon, really.
2: I'd say she's on a par with Frida Kahlo in terms of levels of fame, but obviously Frida is well known around the world, whereas Sojuana Juana is not massively well known outside of Mexico. She's on the two hundred peso banknote her old convent is actually now a university with her name and she's been the subject of a movie a netflix series there have been loads of plays and novels written about her as well she's mega famous
1: and you've contended that her story is misremembered and distorted how so why do you think the popular version is problematic
2: There's various reasons, but probably the biggest one is that she is presented as having been persecuted by the Inquisition. She's presented as a kind of subversive figure who was silenced and forced to give up her career and possessions, but there's absolutely no evidence of a persecution but actually plenty of evidence to the contrary. She had an incredibly privileged life. She had the support of the court and the church. And I think it's problematic in many ways, partly because her memory really has been politicised. Part of the reason why she's presented in this way is because It fits nicely into the framework of Mexican heroine at this time. She's seen as a rebel against the church and therefore the kind of Spanish authorities, when in fact she was a kind of darling of the Spanish empire, which really does not fit the narrative that Mexico would like of a heroine. They've spent a lot of time and energy distancing themselves from Spain so to have this very famous figure in Spain's pocket, if you like, does not really sit very well. And part of the reason why this has happened is due to a biography in the 80s by Octavio Paz. And his kind of treatment of her life and her works, they've stuck completely. If you just speak to people in Mexico generally about Sor Juana, they'll say, oh, how she suffered poor poor woman (laughs) and when you actually look at her original works you see that it's completely different part of the reason also why it's happened is the way in which her works have been edited each one of her works has an approval by the inquisition and of course if you take them out you can present the works in a different way This hasn't necessarily been done on purpose, but it's helped the narrative because to a kind of modern eye, some of her works seem subversive. She wrote a play about Narcissus comparing him to Christ, for example. And of course, that does seem quite a subversive act. But actually, when you look at the play and she compares the beauty of Christ to the beauty of Narcissus, not the self-love of Narcissus, she uses that self-love of Narcissus to compare it to Christ's love of mankind, who, of course, was made in God's image. But people just kind of go, oh, you know, comparing Narcissus with Christ, how awful, how subversive. And of course, we do have Inquisition records. Whereas with Sor Juana, what we have is her works continue to be published during her lifetime and after her lifetime with these approvals. So it's a real shame because she's presented as a victim when in fact she was this incredibly empowered woman who edited her own works. I think that's something worth celebrating and worth looking into. So it's a real shame, I think, that instead we have this same old tired narrative of her being persecuted.
1: So in some ways, what you're saying is that the story has been useful in nationalistic terms and perhaps also useful in terms of how Mexico thinks about women today? I guess when you think about the famous Mexican
2: women you have Sor Juana and you have Malinche, also known as La Malinche or Doña Marina who was Cortez's translator and she's kind of presented as a Mexican Eve and then you've got Sor Juana who's a kind of Mexican rebel against the church and then there's Our Lady of Guadalupe who's the Mexican patron saint so There is, to an extent, that trope of women only fitting certain moulds. And Sojuana is a rebel, but she's also a victim. She's very much punished for
1: that, according to that narrative. So it's a very simplistic view. Well, please introduce us to Sojuana. Maybe you could even start by giving us her dates and her origin story. She's
2: born Juana de Azbaje y Ramírez de Santayana. And unfortunately, we don't 100% know when she was born. We have two dates. One is 1651, the 12th of November. But Octavio Paz has said that it's actually three years earlier in 1648. There's almost a kind of obsession with presenting her as illegitimate the Netflix series in particular goes very far with that narrative and even says that she was an illegitimate daughter of a priest and that that's part of her downfall in the end but Octavio Paz tells us that he found a certificate of baptism recording a child called Inez as a daughter of the church however she only becomes Juana Inez when she becomes a nun so it's very doubtful that that was actually her. So I tend to go with 1651, which is the date that she tells us that she was born. (laughs) And she was born in a place near Mexico City called Nepantla. And at the age of eight, we think she was sent to live with her grandfather in Mexico City. And it was there that she really started showing an aptitude for basically everything, Apparently she mastered Latin in just a couple of lessons and she made use of his library and continued her studies there. And the story goes that the news of this genius child spread throughout Mexico City and that she was taken to the viceregal court, age 15, where she became a lady-in-waiting and a favourite of the vicereine Leonor Carrito. And it's there that she cultivated her talents, she would entertain nobles with her poetry and her works of theatre. And apparently the story goes that age 17, 40 members of the University of Mexico City's Department of Letters were invited to question her on any subject that they wanted, mathematics, philosophy, literature, history, and apparently she astounded them with her brilliance. And then she decides she doesn't want to marry, so the logical step for her was to become a nun. So she takes the veil, age seventeen, and she initially joins a Carmelite convent, but she finds the lifestyle too austere and difficult. So she returns to court for a few years, and then in 1669 she enters the Hieronymite convent of Santa Paula. And she takes the
1: name Sohana Inés de la Cruz at that point. So from her point of view, was it just a rejection of marriage or was there a call to being a nun? What did it offer her? It offered her the opportunity
2: to study. That's what she tells us anyway, that she had no desire to marry. She just wanted to continue studying and writing. And she found that if she joined that particular convent, that she could continue with that.
1: So the stories are that her cell wasn't really that of a conventional aesthetic, was it? I mean, tell us about her cell and indeed her extraordinary library. It's really funny because when you say cell, you really picture
2: prison cell or something like that no it was an apartment really and quite a big apartment she had servants and we think a slave as well who helped maintain this so-called cell and she had a huge personal library some say that it was one of the biggest in mexico she tells us at least that she had four thousand books which I'm very envious of. And not only books, though, musical instruments, works of art, various scientific instruments as well. And she seems to have liked to keep herself to herself. She moans a little bit about the other nuns coming and wanting to talk to her. but She just wanted to be left alone. And of course, she had duties that she had to attend to, but we think she was given quite a lot of time to work on her poetry and her plays and all the other pieces that she did that she would get commissioned to write by various
1: nobles and members of the church. Okay, so tell us a bit about what sort of things she wrote.
2: She was very prolific in that she seemed to try and write every genre that she could. She wrote various different types of poetry. She didn't stick to kind of one type. She wrote sonnets, what's known in Spanish, ensaladas, but also different types of plays. So she wrote comedias, but also religious plays. She wrote very short plays and longer ones as well. She wrote prose and almost theological treatises as well. It was almost like she was trying to show off. She seemed to want to take every genre and master it and show her mastery of each different type of genre.
1: And you've written about her three auto sacramentalis. What were these? It's a play that is supposed to be
2: performed for Corpus Christi. It's a play on the subject of the Eucharist, but it's not just on the subject of the Eucharist. So Juana's Alta Sacramentales were on three different subjects. Each one was three plays in one almost. So each one discussed the development of the sacrament of the Eucharist. So it wasn't just about the sacrament itself, but how it came about and how it developed. And They were also about the conquest and conversion of New Spain in particular. And they also talk about a well-known protagonist. So one of them is about a 6th-century Visigothic martyr saint. And at the time, the Visigoths were very popular as a topic, thanks to Philip II's almost obsessive collecting of the relics and the Habsburgs' obsession with linking themselves with the Visigoths. So you've got the sixth century Visigoth called Hermenegild, who in his own time he's known as a traitor, but in the early modern period he's recast as the first Catholic Spaniard almost. His conversion from Arianism to Catholicism helped to convert the Visigoths and as such helped to start Spain as the greatest Catholic country. Another one is about Narcissus, and another is about the Old Testament story of Joseph. So you've got three very different protagonists all celebrating the Eucharist, but also the conquest and the conversion process.
1: So there's a sense in which she's being quite bold in sort of putting herself into this space of spiritual authority as a female author in the late 17th century. That feels a little surprising. Yes. I mean,
2: she's not the only one. She's definitely the most famous. But from the evidence that I've seen and the way in which her works are put together, it's a very performative thing. And I would even go as far to say that it seemed like there was a narrative being created about her, possibly for sainthood, actually. Everything that we know about her, for example, that she writes poems to celebrate feast days. And one of the feast days she writes about is St. Catherine and St. Catherine goes through a similar trial of having 50 men question her on her knowledge. And so a lot of it feels very performative and the biography that's written about her is very much, it seems, based on Augustine's confessions this idea of someone who has this desire to learn and thirst for knowledge and has to eventually realise that they have to be humbled in some way. And her narrative goes down a similar path. This amazing celebrity nun who is being visited by nobles and members of courts and the church being commissioned to write various pieces for the Viceroy, etc. And then eventually realises that actually she needs to dial it back and realise that her vocation is that of a nun and that she should behave accordingly. There are three volumes of her complete works and the first one is all about her life at court, and the works that she wrote at court. And then the second one is all about her life as a nun. And then her third one is her coming to terms with her spiritual life and how she has a saintly end to her life. It's incredibly performative, I would say. And she seems to be being coached to go in a
1: certain direction. You mentioned earlier that one of the works... That is often thought to make her seem subversive is this comparison between Narcissus and Christ. Is there anything else that she writes that particularly fits that category? Yes. So, one of her most famous works is called
2: La Respuesta, which translates to the reply. So, in terms of background, in 1690, a letter of hers is published, which is called the Carta which translates as the letter worthy of athena and in that letter she criticizes a sermon from 1650 of a portuguese jesuit and he writes about the greatest gift that christ gave to mankind and he negates the arguments of three church fathers Augustine, Aquinas, and John Chrysostom. And so Juana's carta, she goes through taking down his arguments one by one, backing up and supporting the church fathers and their ideas on the topic, and basically saying that he's talking nonsense, essentially. Again, it's a kind of tour de force of look how well I know my theology. And this letter was published with a letter to So Juana from the Bishop of Puebla, who was writing under a pseudonym, pretending he was a nun. He called himself So Filotea. And this letter both praises and criticizes So Juana's response suggesting that as a nun perhaps she ought to concentrate her efforts on studying the scriptures rather than dabbling with subjects such as philosophy so this famous respuesta says that you publish this without my knowledge and this idea has been changed to you publish this against my wishes which is obviously a completely different thing And actually later on in the works that she herself edits, she puts them both in and you also get editions of the volumes in which they're almost used as an early modern marketing tool. You'll have on the front title page, it will advertise these letters and say, you have to buy volume two if you want to see the original letter that Sor Juana wrote. So anyway, her reply is a 40 page address to him and playing this game that he's a nun and saying that how could she possibly write about the scriptures as a lowly nun? She needs first to understand all the other strands of knowledge. How could she know certain parts of the Bible without understanding physics or mathematics and Again, it very much borrows from Augustine's Confessions, where he talks about how his thirst for knowledge would lead him to the scriptures. And actually, it was only once he understood all of these other things that he could recognize and humble himself to understand the scriptures. And so, again, people have published these letters without the praise that was given to them this features in her posthumous works and you've got members of the inquisition just saying how amazing she was how brilliantly she takes down this argument and this portuguese jesuit he himself faced trouble he wrote about the rights of african slaves and he finds himself in trouble for that and actually, there is another priest who gets in trouble for writing about Sor Hanna's reply. The reason he gets in trouble is because he attributes the arguments to Sor Hanna herself, whereas she attributes them to the church fathers. And she's very fastidious with her referencing and her footnotes. And it's seen as one of her best works, but that work coupled with the profession of the faith very much looks like she was taken down and so there's this narrative that she faced an enforced silence not only did it get past the inquisition but it was appraised by the inquisition and then published again and again and again (laughs) so there's talk of a secret inquisition trial which doesn't add up with the way that she was actually treated by the inquisition and the evidence that we have the inquisition thought that not only was it fine but it was
0: actually great (laughs) catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions, and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers, and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know.
1: In a way, it feels wonderful to have these sources that come from her own pen. It feels like we're getting her own voice. And yet what you're saying is that the story we're being told is something quite confected to serve a purpose. How possible is it to get at the, in inverted commas, real Sor Juana? It's
2: really tough and I think part of the reason why she's been interpreted in the way she has is that once you strip those poems and those plays of their praise, etc., they do seem very out there, but also her words are taken at face value. So when she decides to give up her literary career and sign her profession of the faith in 1694... There's a real disconnect with how she writes that profession, which if she were your typical nun, people wouldn't bat an eyelid. It's what they did. But when you almost juxtapose those words with her incredibly precocious poems and plays it does seem like she's being taken down in some way. But actually, when you put the pieces together and you look back to the original volumes of the works, it's not that at all.
1: Yes, that she is creating what looks like a narrative of being humbled, but actually she herself is humbling herself in order to appear saintly as well as this great literary scholar.
2: Yes, I think she probably realises that she needs to be the whole package. I don't think she would appreciate being seen as a victim.
1: Was she writing in Spanish or was she writing in Nahuatl? Should we see her national identity as Spanish or should we see it as Indigenous Mexican?
2: Almost neither. She was Mexican, but what that meant at the time was Creole. So that's people who are of... Spanish heritage, but born in the colony. So not too long after the conquest, you start to see the Creole class getting annoyed with the Spanish class. They were only afforded certain levels of authority. If you were in the kind of upper echelons of society, you had to be Spanish born, and so you start to see fairly early on in the colonial period that the Creole class wants to almost break away in a sense and find their own feet and find their own identity. They start to call themselves Mexican and they use the imagery of the glorious indigenous past, mainly Aztec. This is where they start to homogenize the indigenous people as Aztec when, of course, not all peoples were Aztec. But they use the image of the great Aztec past, almost like a token thing. They present it almost as if they have shared heritage with the Aztecs, whilst simultaneously treating the contemporary Indigenous people very poorly. On the whole, they wouldn't mix with them. You have a Mestizo class, a mixed race class, who were very much below the Creole class. And the further you get into the colonial period, the lesser the importance of the indigenous people. Of course, you still have kind of indigenous nobles, but that becomes lesser and lesser as you go on. And so these Creole people born in New Spain or Mexico, but with Spanish parentage or heritage, start to create this breakaway. And so Juana is part of that. She calls herself Mexican and she says she's very proud to be Mexican. And she uses a few bits of Indigenous imagery in her works, but she only writes, I think it's only two poems in Nahuatl. There are theories around the idea that she could speak Nahuatl, but that she felt more comfortable writing in Spanish and that she didn't feel that she could do justice to her work if she wrote in Nahuatl but it also feels very much like a token gesture. In her Alta Sacramentalis, for example, each one has a lower or an introduction in which the conquest is discussed in some way and the indigenous characters within that are very one-dimensional. So are the conquistadors as well, but there's not really a sense that she had any affinity with these people. She presents them very much in the same way that you find them presented in the missionary works, and that is that they had great potential to become converts, but that the conversion process was very difficult, that they weren't accepting of Christianity, that they had to be persuaded that their gods were demons. And that in the end, once they saw the light, they were grateful converts. And that's very much how Sor Juana presents them, as being confused about why they need to convert. And there are some digs as well at the idea that these indigenous people should understand the Spanish conquistadors telling them surrender or be killed. But again, that's not subversive against the Spanish because you have various Spanish theologians and priests arguing against what the conquistadors did at that time earlier on anyway. So again, if you strip Sojuana of all of that context, she becomes subversive. But once you place her within her historical context, she belongs where she belongs and her works make a lot more sense and they're not actually subversive at all, especially once you see the praise by the members of the Inquisition and the Jesuits in every one of her editions of her works. They talk about how there's nothing within the volume that is problematic
1: at all and it's great. So, there's a kind of colonial condescension in her view of the conquest and the conversion of Mexico, then?
2: In a sense, what you find is that there's an understanding that the conquest caused a lot of horror. You have friars writing fairly soon after, talking about the awful atrocities committed. But the way in which it's framed is that it is a trial that the indigenous people have to go through in order to convert. Presented almost in a similar way to the Egyptians, there's this great civilization with great potential, just like how Egypt became this great Mm -hmm. Christian center and the idea that Tenochtitlan could be the same. It could become Mexico and it can be another great Christian center. And there is all the potential because the people are so clearly civilized and so clearly advanced and intelligent. And they just have this one fatal flaw. Mm -hmm. And that is that they engage in human sacrifice and do not know the true God So she borrows a lot from these missionary texts in the way in which she presents the conversion process
1: and the conquest. In her philosophical satire of 1691, which is directed to misguided men, one extract I quite like says, There is no woman suits your taste, though circumspection be her virtue ungrateful she who does not love you yet she who does you judge unchaste do you think it'd be fair to say that her works are generally feminist in tone or is this an exception it depends what kind of feminist
2: i guess this poem is amazing and it's one of her most famous pieces of work and she wrote in one of her other works about how women should be be allowed to study that there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to study so in that sense yes but her feminism I would say was very self-serving it's very interesting what she omits from her works so for example her play on Saint Hermenegild There is a very strong female character that she could have promoted. She could have presented in a particular way. And there is a Jesuit tragedy on the same subject, which presents her, her name's Ingunda, as the heroine of the story. But Sohwanam very much downplays her role. But to be fair to Sor Juana, she is presenting Hermenegild as a protagonist and comparing him to Christ and therefore she can't really downplay his role. But then also her works on the conquest, she has again the potential to write about malinzin she ignores her she doesn't write about Guadalupe at all and there's potential for that so it's very difficult I'd say in some ways she did very much stand up for a woman's right to study and this poem points out males double standards and it's amazing and it very much reminds me of Dolly Parton's just because I'm a woman (laughs) I've always kind of thought that they're very similar in that sense but there's no real examples of her sticking up for any other women any real women or she very much presents herself in connection with
1: female saint and things like that so what happened in 1694 and why did she decide to change her life she
2: is advised to work on things that are more appropriate as a nun and in 1694 she writes the profession of the faith which she signs in her blood and she sells her belongings and gives the proceeds to the poor she carries on writing though but she dies the following year of the plague and she dies in a very saintly way so by 1694 i think there's been a flood and various other natural disasters hitting mexico city and there's a plague that starts to go around and the story goes that she aids the victims of the plague and therefore succumbs to the plague herself and dies in 1695 but by that point according to the narrative she had come to terms with her spiritual life as a nun and given away her library and scientific instruments and all her jewelry and all the other things that she enjoyed So you're suspicious of this pious ending? It's very convenient. And the narrative that she presents is very close to that of a kind of saint that realises that they need to be humbled. So, yeah, I am a little sceptical partly because we know she edited her works as well and we know the kind of agency that she had to present the story in the way that she wanted to the biography that's written about her in her posthumous volume in 1700 is based almost entirely on her own words so it does feel very much like she knew how she wanted herself to be presented and almost took that to the end
1: how famous was she in her lifetime?
2: She was very famous. Her works were mainly published in Spain, so she had two volumes of her complete works were published within her lifetime, and then she had other smaller pieces published in Spain and in Mexico. And she would have people come to her in the convent. She'd almost put on an audience with Sor Juana almost in her convent. And she would perform poems and put on her plays for visitors, mainly kind of nobles or people of fairly high standing in the church or nobility. And they would commission her to write for them. She wrote pieces that were included in triumphal arches that were part of the ceremonies that would happen when a new viceroy would take to the throne if you like so she was involved in all those festivities
1: as well so she was incredibly well known. If we wanted to give people a sense about why they should care about Sor Juana what would it be because I'm aware you've slain lots of myths and misconceptions but what are we left with? She was incredibly
2: talented as a poet as a playwright, I am biased in that I've written about her Outer Sacramentalis, of course, but they are incredible pieces of art. They are so intricate and so baroque. I guess she has to be a feminist icon because she's taking on the genres that have been done by men. And it's almost like she wants to say, I can do better than them. And she really does kind of master each genre and the plays themselves are just fantastic to read. It would have been amazing to see them performed. We don't have actually any performance history for them, unfortunately, due to the chaos that happened in Mexico that destroyed a lot of the sources that we have on her. But I'd say people should care about her for the same reason that they should care about any great poet or playwright. Because she was incredible. And I think that's what we should celebrate. We should celebrate her work because that's really the only thing we can tell about her is her talent. A lot of her life, we really don't know the truth because it's what she decided that she wanted to be preserved, which in itself is incredible. Having that kind of power to create your own narrative about your life, it's not something that's afforded to many. And I think it's a real shame to think of her as a victim when she was obviously this awesome writer. And I guess in a way she is used by Spain. She is writing at a time in which Spain is in its decline. And I think her works are used in a way to show that there was a point, the conquest and colonial period that eventually bankrupted them but look at the treasures. And she's presented as this exotic muse from Mexico, this phoenix, she's called the Mexican phoenix. So in a way, I guess she is used by the empire to show what great things came of their conquest. But in her own right, she is celebrated for her amazing work. So there's a mutual benefit, I guess, for her. She has her works published extensively and is almost happy to play that game. She's happy to show what she can do and what Mexico
1: can offer. I have one last question for you, which is, what do you think her posthumous reputation has to tell us about the ways in which we remember women in history? I think we have a habit of taking them out of context And I mean, it's partly
2: due to the lack of sources that we have for quote-unquote normal women. We only have really sources for these exemplary women or queens or incredibly famous women. And so we project a lot onto them and I think that's part of the problem that we have is that due to the lack of sources we end up not making things up but filling in a lot of blanks and they tend to be used politically a lot as well for nationalistic ways so Juana is taught in schools and the way in which Mexican history is taught in schools is very political And it changes depending on who's in power, or at least it did up until fairly recently, especially narratives on the revolution, for example, depending on who's in power would depend on who the heroes are. And Sojuana is a useful Mexican icon, and it's very easy to strip her works of the praise that they came published with and to present her as some kind of subversive upstart, almost a precursor to independence. And I think we often do a disservice to the women that we study in history because we very much project our modern day views onto them.
1: Well, thank you so much for introducing us to another woman from history about whom so much has been distorted and so much has been misremembered, but is still a truly great woman, a great poet and writer and one of the few about whom we have sources that she herself has written. So thank you so much for bringing her to our attention. You're welcome. Thank Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family, and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people